not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to get into to our talk for this morning. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be today, covering the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians. But um, we have had, I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this, but we've had a fairly dark and dreary winter. I heard on the, uh, on the weather the other day, this was a few days ago, so the numbers aren't quite accurate anymore, but she said on Channel 6 weather that um, 131 out of the last 160 days have had rain. And we're in something like a, like a 12-inch surplus in terms of how much rain we have uh, or should normally have for this time of year. It's been it's a little bit dark, and maybe, maybe you're feeling this way. I felt this way a time or two. I love winter because I love the snow, but I could do without the, the gray, 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 depressing days quite as many as we have here. I know that's part of what you live in the Northwest. You have to learn how to deal with it, but... Spring is coming, right? And we can see the signs of spring. We can see the, uh, what are the little yellow flowers called? The daffodils are starting to bloom. I saw some um, crocus. That's not what I'm thinking of, the tree. What? Not rhododendron. Dogwood. Did someone say dogwood? Dogwood trees are starting to bloom. But the, the, the signs of spring are, are starting to appear. And um, I don't know if you've ever been through a season of life where it's just, it felt like this last winter where it was just dark and dreary for a long time and, and you didn't know if you were ever going to get out of that season of life. You thought this was just going to kind of carry on forever. And I just wanted to encourage you with that as we start off this morning that spring is coming. And that oftentimes a lot of the stuff that happens in winter is necessary for spring to be able to come. And we don't, we don't really give a lot of credence to that fact. But if winter never came, then, then a lot of times the things that were required for spring wouldn't happen. And, but throughout the course of the winter, the ground is soaking in water and it's also soaking in nutrients. And those nutrients are going into the soil and the roots are going to be fed from, from all of the stuff that's been soaking into the soil over the last several months through the next hot, dry spell that we're going to have throughout the course of the summer. And if it wasn't for the winter, we wouldn't get through the summer. And so God uses all of these different seasons of our lives to prepare us for what is coming. And whatever season you find yourself in, know that there's another season ahead. And as God continues to lead us through our lives and lead us through the process of molding us into the image and the likeness of his son, he will continue to prepare us for what's coming next. And uh, I think that's just a great reminder that God gives us in the changing of the seasons that God also does the same thing in our hearts and in our lives. But we're in the book of Ephesians. We're starting a new chapter today. We've got just a few more weeks that we're going to finish this out. Um, it's been a great journey. If you haven't heard a lot of the stuff that we've covered in this whole book, we've gone verse by verse through the whole book of Ephesians. You can go find those on the website, and I'd encourage you to do that if you want to get caught up. Um, I'm not going to spend time catching us up because it's way too much uh, material at this point. But I do want to set us up for Ephesians chapter 5, and I don't know if, uh, if you have seen anything like this, but yesterday my kids and I decided to go on a walk slash hike around the family farm. We live out on Grandpa's old farm. It's 160 acre, one of the homesteads that, that uh, was first kind of plotted out in the area, and it's up in North Clark County, and it's up in the mountains. We're up at 1,000 feet. We're in the foothills of the Cascades, and uh, so there is some, you know, flat part, but there's also a lot of hills and there's a lot of streams and there's this uh, creek that runs through the property. It's called John Creek. And if you're familiar with that part of the area, John Creek and Pup Creek join together and then Pup Creek feeds into Cedar Creek, which is where the Cedar Creek grist mill is fed off of. If you haven't gone out there, you should go check that out. And then the Cedar Creek uh, flows into the Lewis River and Lewis River flows into Clark River. So all these things just kind of flow together and make this great big system that God designed. And uh, we were out kind of walking. I wanted to go down and see John Creek. It's the biggest creek that goes through our property. I hadn't been down there in a while, and I hadn't ever been down there, I don't think, in the wintertime after we had had a lot of rain. And so you can hear the sound of the creek from far away. You can hear the, kind of the roar of the stream as it flows through the valley. 
down below us. And so we decided we're going to walk down there, and there's a couple of steep parts. And as we're kind of coming around, when we get to this one steep part, it's actually an elk trail. There's elk that live, a herd of elk, about 25 elk that live up there, and they have all these trails through the farm. And we were on this elk trail heading down to the creek, and there's one part where it gets really steep. It's probably, you know, like a good 45-degree angle maybe that you're going down. And while, you know, you're a kid, it's not that big of a deal if you slide down and fall, you know, the, but the older I get and the bigger I get, the more traumatic even little falls like that are. So um, I try to avoid them at, at all costs. And so I, you know, when I get to that part of the trail, I look around for a walking stick, right? And, you know, it didn't, I don't have my hiking poles like I did when we climbed Mount St. Helens, but so I found this hiking stick and I kind of broke it off so it was the right size and I peeled the bark off of it and um, used that to kind of guide my way down and get down to the, to the flat spot. And we moved on from there and shortly after that, Harry, my, my uh, younger son, I have, we have four kids, Hannah, Henry, Harry, and Harper, four H's, 4-H club, and um, Harry picked up a stick, and he started kind of copying Dad. You know, he, would, he was kind of carrying the stick around and using it to walk, and, and he asked a question later on. I said, how did you get your stick so dry? And so, you know, I kind of showed him. You know, you pull off the bark, and, and you kind of clean it off a little bit, and then you've got a nice dry stick to hold on to, not something slippery that's going to slip through your hands. And we were just kind of walking through the farm, and he carried the stick with him all the way for the rest of the trail that we had that morning, and then uh, I think, I don't remember if it was Hannah or, or Henry, but uh, they said, uh, you and Harry are, are buddies, you know, you're like, you're like hiking buddies because he's just kind of doing everything that you do, and that was uh, a reminder to me that, you know, we probably don't think about that a, a whole lot as parents. I know we do from time to time, but You've noticed that, right? Your kids kind of follow you, and they do. They mimic you. They do the things that you do, and uh, hopefully uh, they pick up our good behaviors. Unfortunately, we also know that they pick up our bad behaviors. Um, we say words and anger that we probably shouldn't say, and then we hear our kids say those same words and anger a couple of days later, right? You know, like uh, Harper, she'll say darn it from once, once in a while because she's heard us say that, you know, our Christian swear words that we use. And um, so they pick up not only on our good behaviors, but on our bad behaviors. And so we all kind of, you know, we set an example for someone, right? And I think this is true for all of us in a lot of aspects of our life. There is always someone who is looking to us as an example. And there's always someone who's looking to kind of model their behavior after us, and we lead by example. And whether we're leading for good or leading for bad, we're still leading by example. And so our kids pick up behaviors because they've seen them in us, and our coworkers will even pick up behaviors. Have you noticed how if you spend a lot of time around a coworker, you spend a lot of time around someone at work, that they'll start to say some of the same things that you do, and you find yourself saying some of the same phrases that they say, right? You spend a lot of time together, you just start kind of learning and picking up the traits of everyone. We have these examples in our life, and we are examples in our life, and that's what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 5, that, that we have the perfect example that has been set out before us, and what we need to do is to be an imitator of our Father. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And so the image I hope that comes to mind when you hear that is the image of, you know, of a father and a son and hopefully the, the good character traits of the father being now replicated in the life of the son. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life. What kind of, what kind of life did God live for us as Christ in the life he lived, he, he lived a life of love. And who is God? God is love. So what is the example we're following? We're following love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Here at the very beginning of this thought, Paul is establishing 
kind of the context that's going to go through the rest of the book, at least through the rest of the next several key sections. And you're going to hear this phrase actually brought up in a, a couple of sections when he talks about how husbands ought to love their wives. He uses the same phrase. He says how you know, husbands ought to love their, wives and love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church and that he gave himself up for the church. And here he says the same thing, but he's not talking just about that. He's talking about how we as followers of Jesus Christ ought to live. So the command is then for all of us to love as Christ loved us. And how did Christ love us? He, he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 3, but among you, it's going to seem, seems to take a really hard right turn, but it's all going to make sense here in just a second. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of the light. The fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Several years ago, we did a series called Wake Up, and I started off every, every sermon just, Wake Up! Just kind of need that this morning on the spring forward. I think we need to wake up a little bit and get the blood pumping. So, um, but wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So much truth packed into those three phrases. But why would Paul kind of establish this, be imitators of God, God is love, Christ loved us in a sacrificial way, and then go and talk about these things that we're not supposed to do? Why, why would he do that? Well, I think the reason he does that is, is tied up in this one little phrase, this one little parenthetical thought that he has in verse 5. Where it says, "For this, of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person... Parentheses, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Remember, we talked about how in the whole first half of this book, Paul has been talking about the why. Why should we live out this life? Now he's talking about the what. We've gotten into the what and to the nitty-gritty, but the why still has to drive us. And so Paul is going to keep going back to tying back to the why we're living this kind of life. And here he's doing the exact same thing. He's tying the what with the why. And the question I think that Paul could be asking here is not just, you know, are you doing the right thing? Are you living the right kind of life? But he's probably essentially asking, who's your father? I'm not nearly cool enough to say who's your daddy, but who's your father, right? I've never seen Star Wars, but I know who Luke's father is. Who's your father? We can talk about Star Wars later. I know that bothers a lot of you that I've never seen. I've seen the newer ones. I've never seen the original three. Well, nobody got up and left, so that's a good sign. We know who Luke's father is. Who's your father? And I think that's the point that Paul is going to make in this first thing, actually throughout the whole 
uh, majority of the rest of the book is he's going to be looking at who's your father, and we can tell who our father is based on our actions, right? If we've got the why, if we understand the why that, that God loved us and he sent Christ to die for us and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, that's what we celebrate on Good Friday when we remember communion, we remember that's the fact of, of our faith. But then do our actions line up with the love that we've been shown? We, we know the truth, but do our actions line up? So we should be driven by the truth of God's love to then live a life that reflects God lo- God's love. But if our actions are still coming up short, then I think we need to go back and ask the question, who is your father? And I think this is what Paul is getting at here in verse 5, that immoral, impure, and greediness can be an idol for us. And if we have an idol in our life, then we're actually worshiping something other than God. And so what we need to do is we need to evaluate the actions and who we're worshiping by our actions and get those in check with the kind of action that we should be living But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. There's a quote we use around here that it's not happy people who are thankful, it's thankful people who are happy. And if you're struggling with you know, f- feeling a sense of happiness, and we don't want to base everything on how it makes us feel or even on whether we're happy or not, but if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with joy, a great place to start to fix the problem would be to be grateful because we are truly blessed. Even if your faith is not yet in Jesus Christ, we are blessed because God chose in His grand plan to put you here in this country where you are truly blessed. God has given us so much. So let's be the ones who are marked by gratitude and thanksgiving. Sorry, I was saying you're stuck to my teeth now and I got (laughs) to deal with it. It's probably why no one sits in the front row because they're afraid something's going to come flying out of my mouth and Yep, the splash zone. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. It's not perfectly clear what Paul is talking about here, but in some of the commentaries I read, they kind of agreed with me, so I'm just going to assume I'm right, and you can argue with me later. But um, I kind of think what Paul is talking about here with, with the idea of, of empty words is, is those who um, either don't address the truth and aren't willing to confront the issues that are keeping you from looking and living a life like Christ right? So we use empty words. We kind of skirt around the issue. We never really talk about the real problem. We just kind of use soft language, and so they're kind of empty. They're meaningless. They're, they're pointless words. So those who maybe never talk about the issue, which he's just literally addressed in a blunt and bold kind of a way, or maybe even those who have, uh, like we talked about last week, started to condone the issues themselves. And, and instead of you know, condemning these actions and believers and those who follow Jesus Christ, we started to say, well, you know what? Um, the world is kind of going this way, and it's harder to kind of make a fight against what the world would say. So instead of fighting that, we're just going to kind of make our peace with that and just ignore it and move on. And, and so I think that's kind of what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about empty words. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things... God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. And if you look throughout Scripture, and actually if you go to the Gospels like we're going through in this journey to the cross, and uh, I can't remember if we've started already the uh, Sermon on the Mount, but as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll spend about 10 or 12 days going through the Sermon on the Mount, and you're going to see that Jesus has a very high standard for the life that we're supposed to live. 
There was the law, the Old Testament law that kind of set the standard, and then Jesus took that standard and he bumped it up by an almost infinite degree and made it all the way up here about who we are and the actions in the life that we're supposed to live. And I think the whole point of that was, again, you can't do this on your own. You need the power of the Spirit that comes when you receive Christ to be able to live out this kind of life. But the standard is high. The bar is high on the kind of life, the, the holiness and the sanctity that we're supposed to live our lives. And if we start hearing teaching that says the opposite of that, then we need to start having red flags. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So if you ever hear me start to you know, condone actions within the body of Christ or start to say things are okay that the Bible makes it clear are not, then, then you need to come talk to me or you need to come talk to someone and make sure that we're on the same page and that I'm not just saying empty words. And when you listen, when you choose sources of people outside of this church to, to teach you and to listen to what they're saying, you have to evaluate, are these empty words or are these words that are speaking the truth of God? Because the truth is, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. And we don't want to talk like that anymore. And I'll be honest with you, I don't want to talk like that. <laughs> I hate the idea that, that, you know, that people could get turned off to the gospel because we address an issue like this. But for God's holy people, a very important characteristic that we need to talk about, these are improper. Like we said last week, we don't condemn an unbelieving world for living as unbelievers because they don't know Christ and don't have Christ living in them to power them and fuel them to live this kind of life. So we must always be careful when we're, when we're discussing these issues with those who don't believe that we, that we clarify, as Paul just did, this is for God's holy people. Among us, among God's holy people, among us who are in Christ, our faith is in Christ, we've received the love of Christ, our Father is God Himself, and we're going to imitate that Father, not this world, the ruler of this world, we're going to imitate Father God Himself. For those of us who are God's holy people, there cannot be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for us. So we have to ask ourselves, who's my father? Because if there is something in one of these things that he lays out, sexual immorality, impurity, or greed, that's really controlling my heart, if there's something that's driving me more than Christ and the love of God drives me, then I need to get back to the right father. Verse 4, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. We've talked about this before, and there's some of this in this little uh, ebook that you can get today if you would like. But the way that we shine the light is through our actions and through our words, and when we're out among those who don't believe, we have those two ways, and really only those two ways, to shine the light of God's love into a dark place. And if when we're out among those who don't believe, we kind of join in the fun, so to speak, and we join in with the obscenity and the foolish talk and the coarse joking, we have no hope of shining the light of Jesus Christ in the darkness. Instead, we're hiding our light under a basket. And as we're going to see, light doesn't want to be hid under a basket. It likes to expose things. You don't have to make a scene when you're in that kind of situation, right? I mean, you're probably imagining your coworker who likes to come up and tell you these kind of jokes or likes to say these kinds of things. You know, you've got Michael Scott in your office who's always inappropriate and always has something awful to say, and he's going to, you know, push your, your boundary in one way or another. And, 
you want to just kind of, you know, it's hard to stand up against something like that, so you'd rather just kind of smile and go along with it and maybe participate a little bit. And it's awkward, right? It's awkward to figure out how you're going to respond to that. But what would be the light way? What would be the loving way to respond to that? Because so much of that really goes back to the foundation of who we are, not only as those who are in Christ, but the foundation of all humanity. And we're all made in God's image, and we all deserve to be treated with dignity and respect because God made us in His likeness. And what are we doing when we're being coarse and unkind and putting people down and making fun of those who aren't around as we're belittling God's creations? So obscenity and foolish talk and coarse joking are not just really offensive to us, but they're offensive to people and offensive to the God who made them in His likeness. That's why there's no place for it. There's there's no place for us to be that kind of person. There's no place for us to have that kind of talk. There's no place for us to, to kind of join in and follow the crowd, and we need to stand out and shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ. And so how do we do that? We do that with thanksgiving. We do that with gratitude. And it'd be kind of hard to imagine, but you know, you imagine a coworker making fun of another coworker, and instead of jumping in to tear down this coworker, that really does drive everyone insane, right? You know what I'm talking about. There's always somebody around that just drives absolutely insane, all of those people in their presence. So I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about, you know, kind of ignoring some of the things that, that drive us crazy, but if instead of jumping in on the tearing down, we jumped in with gratitude. If instead of jumping in on the, I'm going to belittle this person along with you, and we'll just kind of make a circle of belittling, uh, I'm going to just kind of interrupt the process, and I'm going to say, you know what, I'm really thankful for this person because of this or this. You know, they do a really good job at this or at that. You know, they're really... They're really this way or this way. What would it look like if we interrupted the obscenity with thanksgiving or the foolish talk or coarse joking? The message uh, paraphrase talks in here about gossip and how, how there are just tongues that love to gossip. That's the, that's the language that Eugene Peterson uses in, in the message. And What would happen if we just stopped our gossiping and we were thankful? What, if we, what would happen if we just stopped talking about people and we were thankful for them? How would that change? How would that change your perspective on, on that person? How would it change their perspective of you? And remember, our hope is to shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ so that people will be drawn to Christ in us and want to come and receive Christ for themselves. How could they be drawn to Christ if we're being coarse and rude and foolish? But they can be drawn to Christ in us if we're thankful, if we're grateful, if we're we're laying out just gratitude upon gratitude because God is a great God and He has done an amazing work in creating all of us and there is something to be thankful for in all humanity, if nothing else, the fact that they are made in God's image. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. If our Father is these things, if we are ruled and controlled by these impurities, so to speak, if we're ruled and controlled by coarse joking or jesting or foolish talk or obscenity or sexual immorality or greed, if we're ruled by these things, then really we're worshiping these things and our Father is that thing or our Father is this world Our Father is not God, and we have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And if someone is telling you that these are okay, you know, it's all right, don't worry about it, just just go along with it, then that's someone you need to avoid. That's what I think Paul would say here in verse 7. Don't be partners with them. Don't, Don't let yourself be influenced by people who are going to lead you away from the path of righteousness, but instead surround yourself with influencers who are going to keep you on the path of righteousness. Why? Well, for you were once darkness, but now you are light and the Lord. Live as children of the light.
See, our deeds, the things that we do, is the fruit of who we are, right? We talked about that last fall when we were going through that series, Good Trees, and and being good trees that produce good fruit. And if we're going to be good trees that produce good fruit, then we have to have good roots and a good tree that produces these kinds of things. And then, and then the tree will be able to produce that kind of fruit because we are good trees. But if we don't have goodness, if we don't have the nature and the DNA and the rewiring of God's nature in us, then it's going to be hard for us to produce good fruit. We won't be children of the light. We'll still be children of the darkness. Our Father is the Father of lights. We see that in other places in Scripture. So that makes us children of the light, which is what Paul says here in verse 8. You were once darkness, but now live as light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Well, what are the things that the children of the light do? What are the deeds? What is the fruit of someone who's in the light? The fruit of someone in the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's the fruit. That's the, those are the actions. This, this is the life that we're supposed to lead, that goodness, righteousness, and truth. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. And we talked last week about truth, and truth can be hard sometimes to really lay out for someone, but we're not really helping anyone by avoiding the truth. We need to really help them see and understand the truth, and it's only through the truth that they can ever experience God's grace. This is what the fruit of being a child of the light is. Goodness and righteousness. Not condemnation, not obscenity, not impurity, but goodness and righteousness. So your Father is the Father of light. You are a child of the light. Live as children of the light and find out what pleases the Lord. So then our pursuit ought not to be, okay, um, how can I, I don't know if you guys have kids, but this is so often the case with kids, right? And we all do this. You know, I think I used the illustration a while ago about, of the chair. And, um, but usually, you know, and I, I just I kind of have a nature to do this even with the stage. There's a line that we're not supposed to cross, and what we do is we get up as close to that line as we possibly can and just kind of flirt with the edge, right? See how close we can get. Just kind of dangle ourselves over and see, oh, what happens if I do this? Right? What if I get right up on the edge and just kind of hang out on the, see, can I get up? A, and we just kind of flirt with the edge and see how close we can get to breaking the rules. Our kids do that. I'm not, our kids aren't perfect. They're pastor's kids, you know. I was a pastor's kid too. We'll kind of set a rule and they'll get right up against it as far as they can and they'll even kind of find ways to twist it and bend it. Well, you didn't say we couldn't do this. You just said we couldn't do that or you didn't say we couldn't be here so we're here, but we, you, we're just kind of you know, breaking the rules kind of, but we're not really breaking the rules so we're just you know, kind of flirting with the edge and just seeing how close we can get to the edge without ever falling in to the water. But what if our pursuit was, instead of trying to see how close we can get to the edge and not sin, which is kind of how a lot of us do, is how close can we get to sinning without actually sinning? What kind of life can I live that I'm just, I'm still technically a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm still technically a Christian. My faith is in God, and I would say God is my Father, but, but I just want to get as close as I can. What is what does kind of the, the law say that I can get away with, right? What if instead of doing that, we followed Paul's advice set here and, and said, live as children of the light, and we spent our pursuits finding out what pleases God? Instead of seeing how close we can get to darkness, what, what, what would happen if we saw how close we could get to the light? What if instead of spending all of our effort and our energy trying to blend in with the world, we looked at what light looks like and we looked at what our Father looks like and we just pursued the God of light and we said, you know what, I don't really care about the darkness anymore. I want the light and so I'm going to pursue the light. This is what I'm going to learn how to do. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to see what pleases God and pleases Him by being and living this kind of way. And that became our pursuit. 
How would that change the way that we live? As Paul says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, rather expose them. For it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it's light that makes everything visible. Real quickly in John chapter 4, I want to show you Jesus' way of shining the light. It's a very popular story. It's one of my favorite stories. Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. Not only were women looked down on in Jesus' day, but the Jews were never supposed to talk to Samaritans. They were supposed to walk around them. And here in John chapter 4, we see Jesus breaking both of those rules. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and you can go read about that story in the Old Testament. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. In the heat of the day, he sat down by the well, by the water. While he's sitting there, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into town to buy food, so they couldn't get him a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go and call your husband and come back. You know the story's turning here if you're familiar with it. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man that you are with now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we, we Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared to you, I who speak to you am he. And this little story, and it continues on here a little bit. We're not going to go through it because it's quite long. But in this little story, we really see a great way to to shine the light of God's truth. First, Jesus starts with himself, and he, you know, he's asking for something for himself, and he wants a drink. And so the first thing he does is he doesn't come up and, and shout condemnation upon the woman for being what she is, and he says, no, he doesn't even get close to that. He says, can I have a drink of water? Essentially, can you help me? I don't, I don't have anything to draw with. Can you get me some water and 
That confuses her because she's not supposed to be talking to him. He's not supposed to be talking to her. Who knows what would happen if someone saw, you know. So Jesus answered her after that. says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And, and he uses his request to start to point the conversation toward God. And the woman, not quite understanding what he's saying, says, you don't have anything to draw with. Where can you get this water? Are you greater than Jacob? And he said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then the woman wants this water, and as he's building up in her the anticipation and the desire for something greater than what she's currently experiencing, the desire to overcome some of the problems that she's currently dealing with, he turns the question away from the physical need of water to go call your husband. He gets right to the truth, doesn't he? He, he shines the light and exposes it. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you are messing with the wrong man. I tell you, I know exactly what you are, and I know exactly what you've done. If you had any idea who you were talking about, you wouldn't be even thinking about that right now because you know that you're going to burn in hell for the things that you've done. That's the Westboro Baptist translation. Let me read for you what <laughs> Jesus actually said. <laughs> I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Maybe, maybe it's implied, but certainly explicitly there is no explicit condemnation of Jesus towards this woman. Any condemnation, any looking down, any putting down of this woman is just not there in the text. I think you would have to add it to the text to say that it's there. Instead, he's, he's turning the conversation she tries to turn it, she tries to steer away, she tries to deflect, she tries to talk about you know, religion and spirituality so she doesn't have to answer the question about who she's with now, not being her husband and the five people before that. She doesn't want to address that. So let's talk about worship. You say we should worship on the mountain, and, you know, you, or you say we should worship in Jerusalem. We think we can worship on this mountain, so what do you think? And Jesus, not willing to kind of get away from the real heart of the matter, says, well, let's answer this question and let's get to the point here. It says, uh, you know, a time is coming, and it has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And the Messiah is coming, right? I mean, that's what I've heard. And then Jesus says, I am he. And we can tell by her actions after this that Christ really changed her because you know, anyone who's in this situation, having had five husbands and being with a man that she's not married to, and this culture in particular would just be considered the lowest of lows that you could be at. And what does she do? Well, she probably understands that everyone in town already knows her business. So she goes and she says, hey, come hear the man who told me everything I ever did. Come and talk to the man who told me about all of my sins and all of the things that I did. And then what ends up happening is that the whole town essentially starts coming to Christ and putting their faith and Jesus Christ. How did that happen? How did that turn? Well, first she had an encounter with the Messiah. It always has to start there. She had an encounter with Jesus Christ himself, and that is what Paul, I think, is getting at when he's talking about all of the ways that we're supposed to live, living as children of the light, not children of the darkness, because the world needs to have encounters with Christ. And as we read through Scripture, the Spirit of God is alive and active at work in all of us. And so the Spirit of Christ is in us, and there is the possibility and the hope that unbelievers will have an encounter with Christ through us. But if we're not living as children of the light, how is that going to happen? She had an encounter with Christ, and Jesus, although not explicitly, I think implicitly, deals with the situation because she said, I have no husband. Jesus said, that's true, but I 
We can talk about religion, but a time is coming, and it's already here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, there's not going to be any skirting around the issues. There's not going to be any hiding our sin from God. Our nature will be consumed and taken over by the truth of who God says we are. We will no longer worship as children of the lie, and our father, the father of lies, our father will now be the father of light, and our tongue will be changed and taken over and replaced with the truth, and now our, our, our mouths and our lives will be in, in concert with God and the life that he says that we're supposed to live. Our, our whole being, our whole DNA will be wrapped up in, in God and in his truth, and then our spirit will be a part of the process. Our spirit, our, our desires, our longings, our, our internal makeup, and the life that we live, the, the actions that we're living out, both of these, all of these come together, and we will worship God in spirit and in truth. How can we be worshiping God in spirit and in truth if we're just trying to kind of get as close to the line as we can? And I would argue if, if we're still trying to get as close to sinning but not sin as we possibly can, our focus and our pursuit is still on the darkness, right? Our, our pursuit is on the fallenness and the brokenness. If we're just trying to get out there as far as we can, we're still looking towards sin. That's our Father, And that's why I think Paul ends up this section with this. He says, this is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that Paul was addressing some things he knew were going on in the church at Ephesus. He knew there was some of this struggle, and he knew what they were surrounded with because he knew everything that had happened in that part of the world. He knew what was going on, and so he knew that at least if they weren't struggling with it, that the potential was there to struggle with it. So he knows these things, and, and what he's saying is, wake up and rise from the dead. You're not death any longer. You were once death, but now you are life in Christ. You are light in Christ. Wake up, and Christ will shine on you. And all of these things that you know, we don't really want exposed, the light of Christ will come and expose them, and it will check them. And you'll see that once everything is exposed in the light of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the light will want to root out all of that stuff and replace all of the garbage and the filth and the junk with the hope and the peace and the truth and the goodness and the righteousness of God. So we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves this question, who is our Father. And maybe you're doing good and you know your Father is God Himself and you are living as a children or as a child of the light. Then we have to ask ourselves, how are we letting God use us to shine the light into the darkness? Do we jump right to condemnation and putting people down and, and condemning them for their sin? Or do we do like Jesus did in John chapter 4? We shine the light of God's love, but we shine the light to lift someone up. We shine the light because we want them to experience God's truth and God's hope for them. So my question for you and for me and for all of us this morning is, who's your father? Who's your father? Who are you pursuing? Who is your focus on? Who or what has your attention? And if your attention is not consumed with Christ and what he did for us on the cross, then we need to turn, turn that and start following the right Father. Will you stand? <coughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for all the goodness that is wrapped up in you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are love and that our Father is the Father of love, that that is his defining character trait, is love.
I thank you that that's who you are, but I also thank you that that's who you want us to be, that you are a father defined by love, but that you want us to be your children defined by love, that we should be your children of the light. Father, I pray in this time that we have to reflect and to think about our lives and as we turn towards remembering the cross and thinking about the sacrifice that you made for us on that Good Friday, reveal to us our motives, reveal to us our pursuits. Father, show us those areas in our hearts and our minds and our lives where our focus is on the wrong thing and where we're trying to get too close to the darkness instead of walking as close as we can to the light. And Father, I pray that you would not only show those things to us, but by the power of the Spirit alive and active and at work in each and every one of us here in this moment we have together this morning in this building, that you would give us the power to lay them down once and for all and to walk away from them and walk towards you. Wake us up. Wake us up. If we've fallen asleep to those things that have just been there so long we don't even notice them anymore, wake us up to them. If we've just gotten used to death and darkness in our life, wake us up so that we now see it and can walk towards the light. And Father, help us to live as children of the light, not only for our own sake, that we may more accurately reflect and live lives that shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ, but for those around us who don't know you, that we may be people of gratitude, that we express on a constant basis how grateful and thankful we are for all that you have done and all that you have given to us, that we start to change the, the culture of the world around us because we are living as children of the light and that you empower us through, through the gift of your Spirit working to fuel us through this resurrection power to live a resurrected life that the power that is at work in us is not just a mediocre kind of okay power that might get us through another day, but it's this power that wants to consume and take over everything that is broken and redeem it into the image of God's likeness, into the image of Christ himself, and that you want us to live from this point forward in the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Give us, Father, that power to live out the kind of life that you've called us to live. And it's not for our own glory, but that we may reflect always the glory to God the Father himself and live our lives for the praise of his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.